Grace you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is Exodus 20, verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you guide us by your word into the way of righteousness. We thank you especially for Jesus Christ, who came to rescue his bride, to join us to himself in one spirit. And we thank you that by him we might walk in faithfulness. We pray that we would live the gospel in our marriages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The God of Israel, the God who reveals himself to Israel and cuts covenant with Israel at Sinai, our God is an intrusive God. He's not like the other gods of the nations who are willing to let their people live however, as long as they keep bringing their offerings, as long as they keep satisfying the God's desire for fats and blood and flesh. Our God is intrusive. He doesn't leave us alone. He keeps telling us how to live. We can only worship Him. No other gods on the side, just to cover our bases. Only one God. He tells us how we're to worship Him. We're to worship Him not through images, but in the image of Jesus Christ. He tells us how we're supposed to keep time, how we're supposed to organize our week. He's interfering with our weekly schedule. Our time doesn't belong to us. Our desires don't belong to us. In the tenth word, the Lord speaks to our desires. Thou shalt not covet desire thy neighbor's wife, his house, his cattle, anything that is your neighbor's. Can we please... Have a little privacy. Can we please have a little zone that's just ours without this God interfering? And the answer is no. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our Lord. And he's Lord of everything. And he intrudes on everything. Nothing, no commandment, seems more intrusive to 21st century Christians and non-Christians as a seventh commandment. If there is one zone of freedom that we defend with all our power as a culture, it's our sexual freedom. Sure, there are few people that would say adultery is okay, that breaking up families is okay. People still believe that families should be preserved. They realize that adultery leads to harm to children, harm to the spouses, harm to society. Sure, protect marriage. Discourage adultery. But beyond that, and there are even some who don't accept that premise, there's some who say that the family itself is outmoded, marriage itself is outmoded. But even if they concede that, they would concede little else as far as regulating our sexual lives. Our bodies are our own. We can do what we like with our bodies. Nobody, nobody 
not even God, is going to tell me what to do. As long as I consent, I can have sex with whomever I like, no matter what my marital status or the marital status of my sexual partner. It doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman or some other entity or being, a robot. It doesn't matter. My body is my own. I can do what I like. And the only rule is consent, that we agree to do it together. We've taken that one step further. It's not just that we want freedom to do what we like sexually. We want freedom to choose which sex we're going to be. We don't want our bodies to tell us whether we're a man or a woman. We want to be able to choose whether we're a man or a woman or one of the other several dozen, I don't know how many, maybe hundreds of different possible genders that there are available these days. That, too, has become a matter of individual consent and freedom. We are our own. Nobody is going to intervene. And yet God spoils all our freedom. He spoils all the fun. God intrudes on our sexual life as he intrudes on everything else. And he tells us what we can and cannot do, what we may and may not do. He tells us whom we can have sex with. He says that we cannot have sex with a person of the same sex. We can't have sex with animals. He gives us regulations, as we heard from Leviticus 20, about what kinds of, what categories of people we can lie with, that we can uncover the nakedness of. There are all kinds of restrictions. And consent isn't the issue. There's no exception in Leviticus or anywhere else in the Bible. As long as a man and a man consent to have sex with one another, then it's okay, as long as it's not rape, it's okay. Consent is not the magic wand that gives us freedom to do whatever we like. Oh, but Jesus. Jesus frees us from the law. Jesus is going to loosen things up a little bit. Jesus is going to let us relax a little bit. Right? Wrong. Jesus says, if you look at a woman in order to lust for her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. If anything, Jesus is making the commandment even more intensely intrusive than it was in the Old Testament. If you thought you could get away with just watching porn in the privacy of your bedroom, on the privacy of your phone, if you think that God would at least give you that zone of freedom and autonomy, you're wrong. Jesus does not allow it. We have a multi-billion dollar global industry, the pornography industry, that is dedicated to enticing people to do exactly what Jesus commands us not to do. To look at women and men lustfully. That's what the pornography industry is all about. To get us to do that. Don't think that Jesus leaves you any zone of freedom. The Bible teaches what the church has always said. Uh, sexual relations is between, uh, exist between a man and a woman. Legitimate sexual relations exist between a man and a woman who are married. That's it. Everything else is prohibited. It's not just that God intrudes on our freedom. 
It's not just that God tells us how we're to live sexually and inhibits our freedom. He's got to make a public issue of it. Leviticus 20 doesn't just say, don't commit adultery. A man shall not have relations with a, with a man as he would with a woman. Neither a man nor a woman shall have sexual relations with an animal. That's not all that Leviticus 20 says. Leviticus 20 says all that, but it also says, whoever does these things should be put to death. Adultery, they shall surely be put to death. Homosexual relations, they shall surely be put to death. Certain kinds of incest, certain degrees of incest, they shall surely be put to death. Bestiality, they shall surely be put to death. He makes a public concern of it. This seems barbaric to our culture. It seems barbaric to many Christians. Well, sure, we should have our own private sexual morality in the church, but to make it a public issue, to make it a matter of public law to prohibit or discourage homosexual relations or adultery or some other sexual perversion or sexual infidelity, that seems barbaric. But public regulation of our sexual lives is really essential, essential to the health and future of any society. Think about it. How will the current existing human beings continue into the future? They continue into the future by having children. I'll let you fill in the gap. How do you have children? Uh, A society can only perpetuate itself through reproduction, through men and women bearing fruits, having children. If we don't regulate that, what are we willing to regulate? Anything? Probably not. Our future depends on upholding certain kinds of sexual norms. The future of our species, you could say, depends on upholding certain kinds of sexual norms. Certainly, any kind of orderly society depends on enforcing certain kinds of sexual norms. To refuse to do that is simply insanity. To say that it's not a public concern what we do in our bedroom is insanity. The late Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen says, What I do in bed is the area of my action in which the community has the most urgent interest. That's where the community has the most interest in my life. Because I could produce offspring and perpetuate my family and the community. Up until very recently, at least recently for people of my age, up until very recently, American law reflected these biblical norms. Up until the early 1990s, a large proportion of the the states of the United States had anti-sodomy laws. They had laws that made homosexual relations illegal. They were rarely enforced, and it was actually the enforcement of one of those laws in Texas that led to a Supreme Court case that overturned all of those laws. But up until the 1990s, that was still illegal. Adultery was illegal in many states. Today, you find it hard to find a church, a church that's willing to enforce biblical sexual norms. Leave aside what we do in public life. Is the church able and willing to say, this is what the Bible teaches about our sexual lives, 
This is how Christians are supposed to live sexually. And if they don't, they don't belong in the community of believers. Do churches exercise uh, 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 church discipline uh, with regard to sexual issues? That's, that's, what, that's how Paul brings up the death penalty in 1 Corinthians. He brings up the death penalty in the context of talking about a man within the Corinthian church who has his uh, father's wife. That's a form of incest that requires the death penalty in ancient Israel. And Paul says, purge the wicked man from among you. He's not saying that the church has the power of the sword to execute the incestuous man. He says that that man should be turned over to Satan in a public assembly. In other words, he should be excommunicated. That's how the death penalty laws of the Old Testament function in the church. Today you have a hard time finding churches who are willing to enforce biblical sexual sexual standards. We know that this severity that is in the Bible, this intrusiveness, is not in fact is not in fact oppressive. This is the way of liberty. This is the way of freedom. Our God's law is the perfect law of liberty. And it's the only way to have a church, a community, a society, a polity that has any sort of social order or stability or health is to have biblically grounded sexual norms that they're willing to enforce. But we don't get to the heart of this commandment, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. We don't get to the heart of that just by talking about social concerns. Just talking about the the need for a a political system to have some kind of orderly uh, order in their sexual lives. As uh, Pastor Les pointed out uh, before the service this morning, marriage is thoroughly, completely theological. It's created to be a sign and a symbol of God's relationship to his people. That's why marriage exists. That's why God distinguished between men and women in order to unite them in one flesh so that by that division and union there can be a symbol, a living symbol of of God's relationship to his people. That's implicit, I think. That theological dimension is implicit in the ten words. I've said this a lot during the series over the ten words, but uh, perhaps some of you have perhaps some of you have forgotten a thing or two I've said. Some of you have not heard this. The Ten Commandments are divided up into two, two sets of five. The first five commandments have to do with false worship, with idolatry in various forms. They're headed by, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's the heading that goes through the entirety of those first five commandments. The second half of the ten words begins with, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not kill. That's the heading that runs through the entirety of the rest of the Decalogue. All of the, uh, all of the uh, prohibitions in the second half of the Ten Commandments are prohibitions of a form of murder. Murder is prohibited because it's an assault on the image of God. Idolatry directly resists or attacks the image of God by worshiping another God. We, we uh, uh, attack God indirectly by attacking his image. But all of the last five commandments are various forms of murder, various forms of murder, various kinds of attacks on the image of God. You kill someone. 
you're committing an act of aggression against the image of God. If you take something from them, you're taking a stealing. You're taking something, uh, you're attacking the image of God. If you desire to take something from them, you're uh, attacking and assaulting the image of God. If you give false testimony in a court so that they're convicted, then you're attacking the image of God. And that's true of the seventh commandment as well. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, can be understood as thou shalt not attack the image of God through sexual infidelity. Sexual infidelity is a, an attack, an assault on God's image because marriage exists as an image of God, as I said. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Paul talks about the relationship between Christ and the church and he goes back to Genesis 2. He says, this is a great mystery. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall be joined into one flesh. This is a great mystery. What's the great mystery? It's not just the union that we have with Jesus Christ by his spirit. It's the fact that God has created a living symbol of that union in human marriage. Every one of you who's married is living out in some fashion, whether well or badly, living out a symbol of God's relationship to his church. Are you telling the truth about God and his church in the way you're living with your husband or with your wife? Or are you somehow assaulting the image of God in that relation through your marriage? All the different forms of sexual infidelity and perversion that the Bible prohibits are various kinds of assault on the image of God. If you try to seek sex outside of marriage, if you're married and you're looking for an adulterous relationship, you're lying about God, you're assaulting the image of God in marriage, you're saying God is an unfaithful God, you're committing an act of infidelity. If you have multiple sexual partners, married or not, you're again lying about God. Your sexual life is supposed to manifest the truth about God. Lifelong commitment to one husband, to one wife. Multiple sexual partners is lying about God. You're lying about the image of God that exists within your marriage. Homosexual relations are an assault of the image of God within marriage. God created male and female, united but different. Adam did not get another Adam. He got a woman, a partner corresponding to him, like him but unlike him. And it's that unity of difference, it's that unity of male and female that's an image of God's relationship to us, of Christ's relationship to the church. Homosexual relations destroy that symbol of God that is supposed to be manifest in our sexual lives. Going right back to the creation of Eve, I think we have some indications that God created male and female, created marriage as a symbol of his relationship to his people. Remember the scene in Genesis 2. After God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, suddenly he spies something that's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. So God makes a helper suitable for him. What does that tell us about God? What points us to the God who is not alone, is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the God who has chosen, freely determined, that he's not going to be God by himself, but he's going to be God with us. You don't have to do that. 
but he chose. They decided it was not good for me to be alone, or not as good. I want to have a covenant partner with me. Man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That's an odd way to say it. We usually think of wives leaving their homes to stick to their husbands. Genesis 2 talks about the man leaving to be with his bride. What is, what is that saying about God? We, hear, we have a preview, a glimmer of what will become, what is being revealed as the incarnation. The son leaving his father's house so that it could be joined in one flesh to his bride. The two shall be one flesh, Genesis says. That's talking about male and female in their sexual relations and in their married life together. But it's also pointing us to the reality of God's relationship to us, of Christ's relationship to the church, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. They were naked and not ashamed prior to sin. They're uh, vulnerable to each other. They're exposed to one another and yet without shame. Just pointing to promises that we have in the Bible that we will one day stand before God without shame. They will one day see him face to face and be united to him forever. That whole story about the creation of Eve hints at things that are going to be revealed about God later. The whole creation of Eve is a kind of allegory of God's decision to create, of his decision to enter into the creation to redeem his bride, of his desire to be one spirit with his bride. Marriage is a theological reality through and through. And that means that living faithfully within marriage is not just an obedience to a commandment. It's not just an obedience to a thou shalt not. When we see the theological center of marriage, when we see that it's a symbol of Christ's relationship to his church and that it was created to be that, then we can see that there's a do, a positive command, that's underneath and under, uh, upholding the do not. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because you should do live out your life as an image bearer of God. Individually, live out your life as an image bearer of God in your relationship with your husband, in your relationship with your wife. Another way to say this is that faithfulness in marriage, sexual faithfulness, is not merely a matter of law keeping. It is that. God is, has a right to command. He's got a right to intrude on everything. But as we live in faithfulness to our husbands and to our wives, we are truly living out the gospel. The gospel is about the son leaving his father in order to be joined to his bride. Your marriage is about that. And as you're living faithfully in that marriage, you're exhibiting the gospel. You're exhibiting the gospel of Jesus the bridegroom who gives himself in utter fidelity for his bride. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you have created us. We thank you that you created us male and female. And we thank you for the great mystery that in our, uh, in our being, in our relations with one another in marriage, that you have revealed yourself and your relationship with your church. By your spirit, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in those marriages, that our marriages would be living testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ and would bring honor and glory to our bridegroom who gave himself for his bride. 
We pray this for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.